0: Hi, Zos Hanukkah. I'm going to try to do last history talk about Chanukah, or perhaps the aftermath. Uh, this podcast is being sponsored by uh, my patron, Chaim Chernoff, who is the head, the founder and president of the Jewish Content Network, which this is appearing on, along with many others, and I will explain at the end what the special simcha is, that we're celebrating, that is, uh, that, that leads him to sponsor this. Hi, good evening. It's uh, the last night of Hanukkah, you know, the eighth night. Tomorrow night, Hanukkah will be over. And um, I want to do a little talk instead of a bio. I would call it the aftermath of Hanukkah, um, which I don't think most people are aware of, because, as I've been mentioning, so... In my talks the last several days, you know, we fix on certain images which aren't exactly historically correct, let's put it that way, and one is Chanukavé, which means that if you go with the general idea of Chanukavé, then you think as follows, there were the Greeks, there were the Jews, there was a war, and finally we won, and we rested, and the war was over on the 25th, and then they lit the menorah, and that came the miracle of Hanukkah, but in actuality, as I think, if you've been listening to me, you know by now, uh, it's not like that at all. Hanukkah, as I keep saying, is an episode. It's a it's a simple incident within a much larger war, which went on for decades. Okay, so just to give a rough approximation, it's not the same thing. Imagine if I talked about the Battle of Gettysburg. Oh, it's a very important battle, but the Civil War was far from over. You get what I'm saying? Or if you want, Stalingrad was a very important battle in World War II, but the war was very far from over. So Hanukkah also, when the Jews captured the temple and so forth and so on, uh, that was a very important battle, but the war was far from over. And I don't think most people have any idea of what happened in the aftermath of the eight days. In other words, very quickly to recap, the Chashmanoim, the, the Maccabean army to be more exact, Judah Maccabee's forces, after having beaten the third or fourth Greek army, which was trying to, constantly trying to invade Judea and reach Jerusalem, and in these battles the, Jew, the Jewish army kept preventing that. And after, excuse me, after a certain battle it was Lysias, excuse me, the uh, <coughs> the Greeks basically withdrew for a couple of months, and they weren't going to come back till the spring or the following summer. That's how. Armies generally campaigned in the ancient world because it's you know cold and uh, other rainy season muddy and so forth, and uh, a regular army with big troops and armor and heavy equipment it's hard to operate in that environment. Ma can in the Middle East if you wait until the spring and the summer is all dry, then it's ideal for military purposes. So let's assume um, this is my understanding. Let's assume that Judah Maccabee defeated that last Greek army I just spoke about um, around sometime in October, roughly speaking. And when that happened, then they went ahead and they proceeded to Jerusalem, which was an empty city except for the Acre on the one hand and the Temple Mount on the other. And actually the Temple Mount also was empty. The only Greeks were in the Acre, which was a fortress you know, uh, that the Greeks had set up the citadel within Jerusalem. The rest of the city was empty. And therefore, the Maccabean army, by default, took possession of the Harbais. To be more exact, they had to deploy half the Maccabean army to fight against the Greek fortress, the Acre. And the other half of the army went ahead and accomplished what you and I call Hanukkah. The Hino, they cleaned up the base of Mish, they purified it, they made new Caleb, a new altar, and they lit everything, and then lit the menorah, Excuse me. Um, And they, you know, all that stuff. And then they had the miracle of the eight days. Shine. Shine. So then the eight days are over. So that would put you in early December, late November, momish, like we are this year. Okay? So imagine approximately that they had possession of the temple four weeks, five weeks, something like that. It was during that time that they purified and set it up, as the book of Maccabees makes cl- clear uh they waited Dafka for a twenty five kiss life' cause that was the day the Gaim had, had had violated the temple and set it up as a as a pagan zach with with pigs and everything, and you know Lahozi believe just on that day the Jews waited to start it up on a Jewish system on a caduceus system, sorry, and then what. So here you are, approximately, I'm just giving approximations, let's say you're like December 7th, December 10th, the era of that year, and the Greek armies aren't coming back till March, April, May, you know, something like that. So you have December, January, February, something like that, March to play with, and you're Judas Maccabeus. So what do you do? What do you do? Well you, say, well, you start fortifying Yushalayim. hopefully try to knock out that Akra, that very powerful Greek fortress that was like a cancer in the middle of Jerusalem. And then we could consolidate the whole Jerusalem as a single place. And you could build a strong wall around it, perhaps, because Jerusalem is easily defended. I don't know. Stuff like that. But that is not what happened. Because when you think in these terms, you're thinking like fairy tales. The Hainu, there's the Jews, there's the Greeks, you know, there's this team, there's that team, and really there were a lot of teams. You see, you have to understand, Hanukkah doesn't take place in a vacuum, in an ethnic or political vacuum. It's not the Greeks, there was the Seleucid Empire, which is a Macedonian empire of Alexander the Great's generals and their their children, uh, which was set up long before Hanukkah, hundreds of years before Hanukkah. And they ruled a, a, a vast area. By the time we're talking about it, it's shrunk. So let's say, for example, roughly speaking, it's like uh, half a Turkey, Syria, Israel, Jordan, that thing, and Iraq. It's not humongous. It's very far from tiny. It's a little bit like the Ottoman Empire in 1900 or something like that, 1912 to be exact. Okay? Actually, to be more exact, the Ottoman Empire in, in, in World War One, if that means anything to you. Now, I mean, you can look that up. Now, here's the thing. But the peoples located in those areas were numerous. You know, you had this group and this group and this ethnicity and, and, and that ethnicity. So let's take a look at Eretz <coughs> during the time of the Maccabean Revolt. Eretz Yisrael, by that I mean the land of the 12 tribes. But there weren't 12 tribes. And <coughs> Ruba the Ruba of Eretz was inhabited by Goyim. Um the Jews that you and I call Jews was called Judea. <clears throat> that was an area I would estimate at the most 30 miles circumference around Yerushalayim. Take Jerusalem and draw a circle 30 miles around it <clears throat> in all directions. That would be the Jewish area. Maybe even less, but that's <clears throat> approximately the Jewish area. Beyond that area, no, <clears throat> by that I mean that's the area where the Jews were in, in decisive majority of population. Possibly they were total of the population. Maybe not. It's hard to tell. Different sources indicate differently. So, just like today in Israel, you got the Arabs and you got the Israelis, but there are places where the Israeli population is thick and, and places where the opposite. That's roughly what you had at that time. Except that you didn't have a large state of Israel, which covers, from the Maccabean perspective, a huge area but it was a lot smaller, roughly what we would call today Judea, not Samaria, Judea, roughly. Okay? Uh, Now, here the Jews were revolting against everybody else. No, they're revolting against the Seleucid Empire. Actually, they're revolting against the other Jews who are backed by the Seleucid Empire. So that makes it a revolt against the Seleucid Empire. But the Seleucid Empire is an outside power. Locally speaking, (coughs) all kind of junk around the place. North of Judea, would be the Samaritans. You got your um, Etrurians, Arabs, uh, I don't know, you know, all kind of junk, right? Half the Greeks, half this, this tribe, that tribe, all Goyim. okay? What they have in common is they don't like the Jews. Um, and then you got your Avera Yardines. Same thing. <clears throat> this Arab group, this half Greek group, this group of this ethnicity, the Edumians, all kind of, the Nabateans, you know, if you really want to get down to it. All kind of different ethnicities. And <clears throat> each one <clears throat> wants to be a battle in their own territory. They sure as heck don't like the Jews. <clears throat> now, listen closely. There were Jews scattered living throughout Eretz Israel, throughout Palestine. But they're in small minorities. So just to give you one example, think of Akko. There was no Haifa, there was a, 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 Akko. At that time, Akko was called Ptolemais. That's because the city was named, renamed in honor of one of the king Ptolemies. <clears throat> and even though the Seleucids had not conquered it not long before, but they still called it Ptolemai's. So it's Akko. You know from the Gomorrah and all that, they used to consider Akko the edge of Israel, of the Jewish area of Israel. Um, it's not that may be may be true or may not be true in the time of the Mishnah. That's a separate shmooza I'm not gonna go into now. But in the time of the Maccabees, it sure was not. <clears throat> now there were Jews, some living in Akko. It's a commercial city the port, there was no hyphens. it was just Akko. And, you know, some Jews were there. But Ruba, the Ruba, the city, were Gaim of the abed Greeks of all kind, Arabs of all kind, you know, Phoenicians, who knows what, all kind of junk. <coughs> okay? So, it's not the Eretz Israel you imagine. You know, Teveria is not a Jewish city, didn't exist. Uh, a lot of areas that you consider Jewish homeland, which were Jewish territories in the time of bias Rishan, weren't. Because ever since the Ten Lost Tribes were kicked out by the, um, what do you call it? the Assyrian Empire, Ashur, Sanherib and all that, there were no Jews there. And if there were Jews, there were Judeans from the tribe of Ju- Judea, Judah, who in the Bayashini period, Ezra and Chemin afterwards, moved there locally for economic purposes. <clears throat> so what I'm trying to say is, throughout Eretz Israel, you had a situation in which outside the area of Judea, Jews are living everywhere in a lot of places, but as small minorities probably in a Jewish neighborhood, some kind of Jewish ghetto, who knows what. And that means they're exposed to the danger of Arab uprising, of Greek uprising, of local ethnicity uprising. And that is what happened when the guy didn't like the Jews. After all, the Jews are always a potential danger to everybody else. Why? Because long ago, everybody knew the Jews used to own the whole thing. And the Jews now are very weak so they can't do anything about it. But if they had the power, it's only natural they would try to reconquer the whole patrimony of King David, you know, of the 12 tribes. Why the heck not? You see? Everybody knew this. And so everybody's always like a trigger finger, you know, itchy and wondering what what, what the Jews are going to do. Now, for a long, long time, the Jews are weak. And then came the Maccabean Revolt, which was you know, pushed by Antiochus IV and his decrees against the Jewish religion. And then, I'm sure to general surprise, the Maccabees started defeating the Greek forces sent against them. So that made all the other Arabs and Greeks and junk like that all over Israel, the north, the center, what you and I call the Galil, the central Israel, uh, Shomron, the coastline, <clears throat> okay, the Avra Yardin, notice everywhere other than the 20, 30 miles surrounding Jerusalem, kind of get nervous. And then they heard about Hanukkah. Lavdafka, they heard the nascent of uh, oil for eight days. They probably wouldn't have made a Rosham on them, to be perfectly honest. But, because um, in Greek culture, yeah, they believe in miracles like that all the time, happening to them everywhere. If you know the Greek writings, it's full of those stuff. But, hard military facts they did hear of. <clears throat> and now they're getting nervous. Because the Jews, under some dude named Judah Maccabee, has actually formed an army. And this army has now captured Jerusalem. And now this army has retaken the temple. And now this army has re-Jewishized, re-Judaized the temple. So it sounds like the Jews are on, on, a, on a rebound. And Chas they may come and start taking back some of their old territory. Which Inchanami is exactly what a got like Judah Maccabee would have wanted to do, had the opportunity present, presented itself. Just take it from me that Judah Maccabee's successors, his brothers and then nephews who came after him, did exactly that. In the 100 years following the Maccabean revolt, I mean, 100 years after Hanukkah, over the course of the next century, <coughs> the successors of Judah Maccabee, it's a long story not to go into now, proceeded to do precisely that. They did reconquer the territory of the 12 tribes. By the time you finish with Yanai, you get the Shlomus Alexandra. So in other words, the Gaim had what to worry about. And therefore, now that they heard, now I'll read you from the first book of Maccabees which talks about the day after the miracle's over. They captured the base of hooray. They relit the candles, and it went on for a miracle for eight days, hooray. And now what? And it says, when the Gaim heard that the altar had been built and the sanctuary dedicated as before, they became angry. <coughs> Notice this provoked a whole bunch of anti-Semitic riots, which is not simply because they don't like Jews, although that's true, because now they're worried the Jews, you know, are going to come, come and take over the land again. This is exactly what happened in the modern state of Israel when the United Nations passed a resolution in late November of 1947 for partition that there should be an Arab state plus a Jewish state in Baghdad and Aleppo, I don't know, all over the place. There were all these riots when they killed Jews or whatever. This is actually when they burned the oldest Sefer Torah, you know, the Kesar Toba, the, the codex that serves as the master text for the Chumash. Uh, you don't hear anybody complain about it. But that's what happened. And now also, they go on a big spaz, and it looks like there might be a mass pogrom all over Palestine, outside the territory ruled by the Maccabees, outside the 20 miles surrounding Jerusalem. In <clears throat> the rest of the there may be a mass pogrom, and they may kill thousands of Jews scattered throughout all over the place, which would have been a bummer as far as the miracle of Khan is concerned. You got the miracle of the oil eight days, and then comes a massacre, thousands of Jews are killed. These Arabs, he said, the Gaian planned to destroy the descendants of Jacob who were among them and began to slay and destroy the people. <coughs> See, if you're Judah Maccabee, it's like the, the day after Hanukkah, it's back to war, not against necessarily the Greeks because they're not coming back till the following spring. But you got the Arabs and the local Greek junk running around all over the place and the uh, Edomians and the Etrurians and the, uh, the Nabataeans and all that business. He says this. And he says, so Judah made war against the Bnei Esau and Edom and dealed against Acrobatine because they kept attacking Israel. So in the south of Yerushalayim, in the area you and I today would call Beersheba at that time was, was part of Asa, was part of Edom, Idumia, as the Greeks call it. Um, this is smaller than the kingdom that had been earlier, but nevertheless they're there. And they started making trouble. So here you are, Judah Maccabee, um, what do you call it? Uh, it's a postman's holiday, you know, what do you do when the day's off? <laughs> you go for a walk. So what does an army do when the days, when they have a rest, the Greeks aren't coming? You go to work in someone else. And they had to do it. And so he went against uh, team which was the Edomite headquarters. And he dealt them a crushing brawl, brought them low and took spoil from them. And he went after another tribe, right? The B'nai Bion, some Arab junk, who became a snare and stumbling block to the people by lying in ambush against them on the highways. So in other words, you had exactly what you had in modern Israel, what they call the mis-tan-anim, Um terrorists who infiltrate into Jewish territory to attack people on the roads and the highways. Uh, so the Jewish victory brought out all the the, the the fangs of the local Arabs and the Greeks and the different t- types. And Judah Maccabee, listen, at that time there was no United Nations, there was no CNN, there was no nothing, there was no international law of war, and so you play hardball with me, I double the hardball with you, okay? And Sudamakami went against them, okay? And he shut them in their towers and camped against them and swore to destroy them completely. He burned the towers to all the guys in them. So he went to all the headquarters of these Arab groups, and he got them into a tower or in, into their citadel and burned the whole place down. So basically he declared total war. I repeat, this is what's happening post-Hanukkah. You see, it's not Hanukkah and everybody can sit down and exchange presents. Hanukkah was like a week off, so to speak. Uh, a little more than that, but nevertheless, now comes this. He crossed over against the Ammonites. That's Ammon, that's in the Transjordan. And he had whole battles with them. That's a, a general um, a statement. But now it gets a little more exact. The Heathen, that's the Gaim and Gilad, which is Ere gathered together against the Israelites to destroy them, but they fled to the fortress of Desima. So all the Jews ran away to a fort, like in khmelnytsky's time, to try to hold out against the, uh, the the pogrom. They then send a letter to Judah Maccabee and his brothers, saying, the geimer around us have united to destroy us. They're preparing to come and take possession of the fortress. Their leader is Timothy. Come and rescue us, because many of us have already fallen. All our brothers in the village of Tubias have been put to death. They've carried off their wives and children and their property, and they've killed a thousand men. So here you are, Judah Maccabee, right after Hanukkah, getting these letters from elsewhere saying, we got a pogrom over here, they're about to kill us, we got a pogrom over there about to kill us, they already killed a thousand here, five hundred there, they captured the women and children, they're off in slavery, you know. And while this letter was being read, other messengers came, arriving from the, Galil, from the Galilee, bringing a similar report. Gaium from Ptolemais and Tyre, which means Akob and Sore, and Sidon, and all of Galilee, the Gentiles, have gathered to destroy us. So you got some grand mufti type guy at that time, whoever he is, organized the gun for one gigantic pogrom to kill everybody. And while they were hearing this, a great assembly was called, what you and I would call a Knesset Agadola, to decide what they should do. And Judah and Shimon said, now, they were talking. Judah Maccabee is not a talk guy, he's a do guy. And you see here, Judah said to Shimon his brother, you choose men, go save our brothers in Galil, and Jonas and I will go to Gilead. Basically, we're not taking nothing from nobody, and we're not leaving anybody behind, as the expression goes. After out to kill the Jews, we're going to do the best we can with the forces at our command to try to rescue them. We can only do what we can do, but we give them the best shot. And I don't care, if we just finished Hanukkah. That's only about the Yerushalayim and the base amigas. There's a lot more than the base amigas. The base amigas is very important. There's a lot more than the base amigas to worry about. We got fellow Jews all over the place, and he defied his forces like a general. And he said to his brother Shimon, who was one of his commanders, you lead one army north on a gigantic Antebi expedition to the Galil, right? Just think of what that means. You're marching north in December um, from Jerusalem. It's not easy because of the snow, the rain, and all sort of junk. But these are the Maccabees. They said, we're going to do it. It's like Snow Jackson, you know, fast infantry. And we're going to march north and try to save our brothers in the Galileo. The rest of the army under me and Yonah's son, these are the two brothers, um, will go to Gilad. So Judah Maccabee himself says, I'm going to lead the army across the Jordan River. He le- he left two guys in charge. And he said, Don't. Leave. And then he said, like this 3,000 men went with Shimon to make the expedition to the Galilee. 8,000 went with Judah into Gilad, into Arayari. So you have major battles about to take place now, not against the Greeks at all. In other words, not against the Seleucid Empire, Teochas, and all the other business. But simply against the local Arab business, the local Greek and half Greek populations who hate the Jews and want to kill them. And one force was 3,000 men, and one force was 8,000. Shimon went to the Galilee, fought many battles, beat them, pursued them to the gates of Akko. 3,000 enemy were killed. He plundered them, which means they stripped all the bodies and took all their stuff. He took back with him those in the Galilee and the Arbita with their wives and their children. Everything was theirs and brought them back to Judea with great joy. So he did an Entebbe operation without an airplane, without commandos. Isn't this amazing? So they must marched north really fast. I mean, really fast, which itself is impressive. Remember, it's the winter. And anyway, to march through central Israel is not Pasha, it's all mountains and hills and so forth. So these guys are tough. Get it? It's tough. But in Echinami, by this time, they've already gone through the battles against five or six Greek armies. The the cowards had left. The The weaklings were killed. It's a Darwin situation. Survival of the fittest. And these guys were, were tough guys. And Shimon was a tough guy. Shimon Maccabees, And they marched north. And it, 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 the book doesn't bother to tell you all the engagements they got into. But they killed threes out of the enemy. And they then took all the Jews they could find in the Galil and say, Listen, it is not safe for you to live here among the Arabs and all this other business. You have no choice but to make Aliyah. Aliyah means like this. you got to come down from the Galil and go and live with us in the Yerushalayim area. There you'll be, at least, with the fellow Jews under protection of the Maccabean army. It's the best we can do. Okay? And they did do it. Meanwhile, the other army, which is 8,000 men under Judah Maccabee himself and his brother Yonison, crossed the Jordan River. So they went in yarding and marched three days' journey in the desert, which is interesting. Three-day march, okay? And basically, they were going the wrong way. If I understand this correctly, and I can only tell you the way I understand it, they went, you know, eastward. You know what I mean? In other words, you cross the Jordan and go straight straight ahead. Uh they met up with certain Arabs who came upon them and said, Guess what? The other Jews are shut up in a bunch of towns in Devrayardin, in Besora and Bosor and Elima, Kaspor, Makin and Karnaim, all cities, cities fortified and large, and they were in the rest of the towns of Gilad. So basically it's become impossible for a Jew to be alive in Devardin unless he runs to a fortified town. On the next day, the Arabs throughout the uh, averyardin were drawn up to launch an attack against the fortresses to take him and wipe them all out in one day. So there was some kind of master Arab guy who we'll see was named Timothy. That's a Greek name. It's probably not his Arab name. And um, they had some master plan to simultaneously attack a bunch of forts, storm them like Khmelnitsky, you know, in 1648, and kill all the Jews. So what are you going to do? So Judah Maccabee says, "I like, guess we are turning on the, uh, <laughs> the the infantry. In other words, we're marching 100 miles a day. You know, like cr- we're going to run basically." Judah's army turned back suddenly by the wilderness into Besora. So this is to be understood: it's like a kind of a triangle. You know, uh, the hypotenuse. You know, notice they're going in this direction and then they shift, t- taking advantage of going on, on, on a diagonal to get as quickly as possible to the nearest town. And what he's going to do is, Mama's like Stonewall Jack, going to attack a town, storm it, attack another town, storm it, attack another. Each town is like 5, 10 miles away from each other. And they're going to go boom, 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 boom. So Juno's army turned away suddenly by Basura. They attacked the city, meaning this was a town full of Arabs who were about to attack the Jews. He killed every male with the edge of the sword. So I told you, this is before CNN. So you play hardball with me, I will play hardball with you. And they killed all the Arabs there. They took all the spoils, burned down the city, left it by night and arrived at the stronghold. Which means the town that was getting ready to attack the Jews the next day didn't, (laughs) because it didn't exist the next day. And he got to the fortress where the Jews were holed up. And they raised their eyes and they saw a great multitude raising ladders and engines to take the fortress. In other words, the town that was going to lead the attack was wiped out. But plenty of other Arabs were already there attacking the city with ladders and siege engines. And so it's a Mamashah movie, like the cavalry to the rescue. When Judah saw the battle had begun, meaning that the Arabs are, and the Greeks are attacking this town to storm it and, and kill the Jews, and the din from the city went up to heaven with trumpet blasts and great outcry. So you could hear a major battle was was raging. He came there exactly just in time, and he said, fight today for our brothers. Basically, he so said, I guess, charge, <laughs> you know. And he went after them in three companies, sounded trumpets, the army of Timothy thought it was Maccabee, and they fled. And he smote them a great blow and killed 8,000. So he just stormed the city, then wiped out of town, then then prevented an attack on the city, killed 8,000 of the Arabs. The others ran away. Then he turned aside to a Lima. Notice then he went another few miles to another town where the exact same thing happened. He attacked it, captured it, killed every male in it. Plundered and burned it down, and then he went and took Kaswar, Makhe, Basur, and the rest of the towns of Gilead in a series of surprise attacks. So, this is amazing, <laughs> right? Now, the, the reason for this is simple. You can't compare by this time, as they say in Darwinian sense, whoever was in the Maccabean army was a veteran of many battles. You know, many had fallen. These are the tough guys, okay? When the going gets tough, the tough get going. These are the tough guys. These are the ones who already made it through the battle, you know. It's like Wellington and in the and in and the, in the Peninsula campaign. You don't have to give a lot of orders. You just whistle here and there, and they know exactly what to do because they've done it. You see, they faced this Greek army and that Greek army, and compared to that, this Arab junk, these pogrom operations like Kazakhs, they're undisciplined. You understand? This is a bunch of people who want to kill a bunch of Jews. They have no chance against the disciplined three companies of so the Maccabean forces when he's got eight thousand men who know exactly what to do and to fight like crazy, and these—that's why they ran away from them because the Maccabees by this time, this army knew exactly how to operate and they were highly professional, in the sense of being veterans. Uh, the 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 local Arabs weren't like that, and so they went ahead and did it. So again, I want to read: Kastor, Machabe, Besor, and the rest of the five ten towns. So basically, the next couple of days. So we a series of a couple days, you fight a battle, you go fight her, you fight a battle, you go fight you fight a battle, you go fight her, and you kill everybody in sight. And the others are scared. After that, Timothy collected another army, the Arab guy, or the Greek guy maybe. He pitched them before Raphon on the other side of the mountain stream. So in one of these rivers on the Avery yarding situation, Judas sent men to spy out the camp. So now he's facing an army. But I repeat again. Whatever he's assembling from the local militia and Arab business, these are pogromists. You know, these are the guys who want easy spoils and, you know, they're rioters and that kind of business. They are not veteran troops, okay? The Jews have the veteran troops. So Judah sent men to spy out the camp, and they said, All the enemy have gathered a powerful army. They've hired Arab mercenaries to help them. They're encamped on the other side of the brook, ready to launch an attack. Judah marched forth to meet them. Notice he said, I'm going to attack first. Timothy said to his men, if, if he crosses over to battle, then we will not be able to stand him, for he'll prevail against us. If we cross over first, we will win. When Judah came near the water brook, he said, We ain't stopping. Don't anyone permit to encamp. Everybody go right into battle. So basically he said, You may be tired and hungry, but the military situation is one in which whoever attacks first wins, so we attack first. And he crossed over against them first, which means he himself went in the front. That's who he was. With all the army behind him. And the enemy was crushed before him. They threw away their arms, and they fled to the precincts of the Temple of Karnaim. There was some big Avodah our place over there. The Jews took the city, burned down the temple, and everybody in it. So boy, oh boy, like I said before, this is not the Geneva Convention over here. But they didn't play by the Geneva Convention either. Karnaim was conquered. They could no longer make a stand before Judah. And then he did what the brother had done in the Galil. He gathered together all the Jews who were in Gilad, from small to great. So basically, he said like this, you have, we cannot protect you. You understand? I don't have the army for that. You have to come back with us to Eretz Yisrael. When I say Eretz Yisrael, to the Jerusalem area. There you'll be in the central place. You won't be exposed to the pogrom guys. And at least whatever protection we have from our army, that's what you'll have. If you're scattered all over the place, I can only do this once. You understand? I can't spend the whole time running from town to town every time something happens. So I'm taking everybody back like Entebbe. You see? And you got to come back with me. He gathers together all the Israelites who are in the Gila from small to great, with their wives, their children, their possessions, a the great camp, to return to the land of Judah. <laughs> so here you have a very interesting picture. Somebody could make a painting, right? A long, long line of Jewish civilians, a long line which had been guarded by the Maccabean troops, okay? By veteran troops. So as long as they're, you know, have the Jewish soldiers near them, the bad guys are afraid to come close because the Jews will knock them out, right? They'll wipe them out. But you know and I know, if the Jewish army ever departs and the civilians are left to the mercy of the locals, then Ahav, watch out. And, uh, you know, Judah Maccabee knows this full well. So therefore, he obviously had the task in front of him, which is to guide, uh, you know, the forces and protect them, you know, like a shepherd, right? So this is as interesting as Hanukkah at least from the from the fighting perspective. And this is not about the Seleucid armies at all. So anyway, they came to Ephron. This is a cool story. There was a city on the way, on the way called Ephron, which was a geisha city, which blocked the road, and they had to go through it. And so he did. It was impossible to turn left or right. They had to go right through the middle of the city. The inhabitants of the city closed the mountain and blocked up the gate with stones. At least they said, we're not letting the Jews through. So Judah Maccabee did like Moshe Rabbeinu, and he said to the king of Edom, let me go through. I'm not going to bother you. We'll buy food from you, you know. You know, whatever it is. Let me go through. We want to pass through your country in order to go ours. No harm will come. You were only passing through. They wouldn't open the gates to him. They said like the king of Edom said to Moshe Rabbeinu, they messed with the wrong guy. Moshe Rabbeinu was told by Hashem, leave him alone. Right? I'll talk to this more, you know, I'll Okay, so they were lucky. There was no God telling Judah Maccabee, turn aside. They couldn't turn aside. They have all these refugees with them. They can't turn aside. So he said, I guess, you want to do like that? You want to play hardball? Well, play hardball. So they went up with the gates. So Judah commanded that orders be given to the camp that everyone should stop right where they are. The men of the army sent camp, meaning he pulled in all the soldiers. And said, I guess now we're going into a military operations mode. Uh, and the army said, camp, and he fought against the city a day and a night. So, what's that 36 hours? They launched a siege and a series of attacks on the city, and the city was delivered in his hands. So, notice he stormed the city. So, they made a big mistake, of course, because they didn't realize who they're dealing with. And he killed every male with the edge of the sword, like I said before, uprooted the city. I don't even know what that means. Yeah, did, he, did he blow up all the houses? I mean, have a dynamite. He uprooted the city, he plundered it, and passed through over the bodies of the men who were slain. <laughs> so, boy, oh boy, right? This is a movie. Okay, he marched the refugees over the dead bodies of the slain. Um, uh, as somebody told me, he said, This is like Brooklyn, you know. Uh, then they crossed the Jordan to the great plain opposite Basham. He kept gathering stragglers and encouraging the people along the entire road until he came back to Judah. Then he went to Harzion with gladness and joy the upward Carbonus, burn offerings with Jacobin Olos because not one soldier had died in the battle. All right which means he had an amazing campaign, which I just described, without a single casualty. So that's a sign, obviously. I mean, you could look at it two ways. That's a sign there was Mide which is true. But it's also a sign, which I told you before, these Arab guys, these Greek guys, these local tribes, they're just what you call rioters. You understand? They like to have a good time. They they prey very easily on defenseless Jews, on defenseless people. You show a town where, you know, there's nobody that knows how to fight. Uh, you know, women and children, uh, you know, uh, these, uh, you know, scholars, something like that, shoemakers. So, yeah, then they're great. You come up as professional troops. And I mean, like the Maccabean armies, who were professional times professional by this time, by this time. And they ain't got a chance, you see? And they simply didn't realize that. And had they realized and left the Jews alone, they would have saved themselves a lot of dead. So, this, what I just described, how long does that take? Uh, It sounds like it all took place within a month, or maybe a little bit more. sounds to me like a month. Let's say I'm wrong. Let's say six weeks. So if Hanukkah ends up being something approximately December 7th, approximately, and it takes another month and a half, so by the end of January, you know, I'm giving rough, rough times, and in January, they had rescued all these Jews from around Israel, which is amazing. In other words... The aftermath of Hanukkah is one gigantic Entebbe operation, but Entebbe was a piece of cake compared to what I just described. Agreed? Some people don't realize this. They think Hanukkah everything was over, and Givaldic. And I'm not even talking about when the Greek army comes back. That I don't have time to talk about tonight. I just want you to say, if you ever ask yourself the question, what is the aftermath of Hanukkah? Right? So, uh, this is what it was. Now, uh, tonight's uh, uh, podcast is being smiled. I forgot to mention it before and I'll try to uh, do justice to it. To Chaim Chernoff, who's, to whom I owe all the podcast stuff. He's the one that that's in, that runs the podcast with his uh, uh, company and uh, he's the one that got me into this. <laughs> he's always pushing me to do better. And the best part of it is he just had a baby boy today. Miles is home to the Chernoff family and uh, I want to uh, wish them all the mazel, and uh, the baby should be, you know, the, as they say, and the bris bismano, and all that sort of thing, and isn't that a nice Hanukkah gift, <laughs> so to speak. So, um this podcast is for Chaim Cherub and his family, and um, with this, I'll end my Hanukkah talks for this year, and I uh, wish everybody the last day's Hanukkah should be a time of uh, simcha and Hatzlocha for everyone. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.